Today's topic is too busy to meditate. I've taught meditation about 1,700 times in the last five years. I teach fairly regularly. On a busy week, I'll do seven to ten classes. Some of them are structured. Most of them I sit down and I don't know what I'm going to say when I sit down. And one of the first things I do is, is I ask people if they've got a meditation practice, if they've meditated and if they've got a regular practice. I've always asked those questions since I started teaching just by getting a show of hands. What I've noticed over the course of the last five years is the response to that question, have you meditated? And generally speaking now it's 60% of every group. And then the next question is, do you have a regular meditation practice? The response is 5% of the group, on average. It varies. What's happening there is that everybody's trying to learn meditation the way that I tried to learn meditation and eventually did it. I started meditating in 1988, and I didn't have a practice until 2008, 2009. And I don't want you to have to wait 20 years to build a meditation practice. What goes on? What happens in the modern mind? I am very fortunate in that I am aware of my mind. It's just as simple as that. There's no other way to put it. The mind has compelling processes in it. It isn't so much thought. It's difficult to describe. There's a combination of thought, When, if I just refer to thought as the inner narrative, the inner voice. Not everybody has an inner voice. Some people, their thought consists of symbols. There's only, as far as I can tell, one researcher who has spent the time to understand thought. So I've been dredging through the literature. And it, <laughs> it's incredibly poor when it actually comes to what is thought. What thoughts arise in people's minds? What does it look like? How is it different from one group to another? This is the key to being human and the amount of research that's been done on it is very limited. So there's this researcher by the name of R.T. Hurlbert who written a couple of books on this and he's developed a process that consists of beeping people during the day and then them writing down, descript, describing the contents of their mind. And some of the insight is spectacular. But it doesn't seem to have been adopted because it's perceived to be subjective. To my mind, that's an, an unhelpful distinction. Yeah, because all of life is subjective, right? So we just give up? No. But anyway, it has, doesn't seem to have gone much further. I have as much insight into people's minds as anybody else, and a lot more than many, because I 
speak to my students about the contents of their minds because I need to understand where they are if I'm going to guide them in their meditation practices. Not everybody's the same. And that contents of the mind is what causes people to want to meditate and ultimately putting busy busy schedules to one side, we'll get to that in a moment, ultimately it's the contents of the mind that stops people from maintaining a regular meditation practice. So it's a catch-22. You've also got the same catch-22 with how much time do I have? And there's this concept called margin for change. You know what a margin is, is, is a piece of paper and the, the bits around the paper that's blank, especially on the left-hand side usually. And what you do is you, you put your additional information there, so it's a bit of extra space that you can use. If you've filled your entire page up with writing, there's no space, so you have no margin. And that's what it's like with life. And it's a perception. Do I have time to do this extra thing? And unfortunately, the way that meditation's always been taught, it's been taught in a traditional way. It's very difficult for people who've learned it the traditional way to teach it a different way. But I've learned that learning it the traditional way took me 20 years. So let's throw that out the window and find other ways of helping people to build a regular practice. And it needs to be a regular practice because you need to get to the point where your mind is calm enough that you can be aware of your inner experience without it becoming overwhelming. That's the contents of the mind that makes it difficult. Is this... It tends to be, to my mind, not... I used to think just thoughts and emotions, but actually there's a desire for action as well. These are the most compelling inner processes, is the, I must do this thing, I must say this to somebody. Let's say you had a difficult encounter with somebody and you want to speak to them about it, whatever the problem is. There's the need to do it, there's the fear of the outcome and then there's the mind constantly creating scenarios. I'm going to say this, then they're going to say that, and I'm going to say this, and they're going to say that. It creates like an inner play in the mind. I've got a name for that. It's called rehearsal. Sometimes the power for rehearsal is, is incredibly compelling. If it can't be resolved satisfactorily in the mind as a a consistent element of your experience. So let's say you're going to have to step out your comfort zone to tell somebody that they're being an arse. This is probably the most difficult thing that people do in our culture, especially because we've got a culture of politeness and we don't know what the outcome's going to be, how they're going to respond, because they may never have been told not to be an arse before in their entire life but you need to do it. So there's just an example. The mind is going to go crazy over that one. It's going to go repetitive over and over and over again. So then what happens is you sit down to meditate, your mind becomes calm, 
And this modern mind, monkey mind, modern mind, call it what you like, goes into overdrive. So actually you're getting the opposite experience to the one you want. You're meditating to calm your mind and it becomes deluged with the very material that you're meditating to reduce the intensity and duration of. Here's a little quote. I'm reading a book by a great meditation teacher called Mingyur Rinpoche. At kind of 85% of what he talks about is... He's a fully signed-up Buddhist monk, travels around the world, but he has more of an insight into the Western mind than many other meditation teachers, Westerners and otherwise. And so he's written this book called The Joy of Living, and in it is this quotation. Never a truer word was said. He says, Ultimately, happiness comes down to choosing between the discomfort of being aware of your mental suffering and the discomfort of being ruled by it. Yeah? You either become familiar and comfortable with it, or it happens to you. And it's always going to happen to you anyway. We're not going to become Zen gurus where our mind is from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed clear and still and calm like a mountain pool. And no aggression or abuse or criticism can ever affect us. That's never going to happen. But what will happen is the threshold goes right down. <laughs> really does. It's still there. We, we've got our buttons, but once in a blue moon. Right? That's where we want to be. You want to respond proportionately. And we have a tendency not to do that. That's where the mind comes in, trying to resolve this. It's going round and round and round, trying to, to, to make it consistent with what it perceives to be the rest of your experience. So that's the thing that gets in the way of meditation, is the thing that causes you to meditate in the first place. And then it isn't actually about time. It's about your, your sense of a margin for change. You, you're going to the place you don't want to be to get comfortable with it so that the place you don't want to be becomes comfortable. And ha so how do you do that? Well, that's what I need to show you. So that there, there are a number of meditations that I've reconstructed into a practice. In true confusing Robert fashion, I call this the practice of no practice. So you're here to learn the practice of no practice. And the practice of no practice, of course, begins with the meditation of no meditation. Right. So what we'll do is the meditation of no meditation. And so for those of you that are new to the group, this isn't a traditional meditation in, in the typical way. You can sit however you're comfortable. It doesn't really matter. It's more useful if your feet are on the floor and if your eyes are closed because it's a listening exercise rather than a meditation. 
but you don't have to do that. You can, the, the idea of this is, is actually for you to be able to do it anywhere, which is a kind of little bit of a clue as to what the purpose of it is. And what it consists of is a process of listening for the next sound. Now, this is something that you do all the time. You're not aware of it. So let's say you're walking along the high street and your mind's wandering, you're thinking about what you're going to do, you're doing one of these rehearsal things, or you're reconstructing some experience from the past, those two areas where human beings spend most of their mind, reconstructing the past and rehearsing the future. And there you are, you're, you're doing that, going round and round in your head. A pizza bike mounts the pavement behind you. Your subconscious, which is constantly scanning your environment, identifies that and identifies it as a threat. And you respond physiologically. You're responding to this process which is happening that you're not aware of. And the process is that all sound all around you is being collected by your brain. The pattern of the sound is being matched with the brain's memory of all sound. And it is looking for threats. It's also looking for rewards and it's, 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 it's listening out for your name being called and so on and so forth, but largely it's scanning your environment for threats. So if you watch your cat strolling across the lawn, cat looks like it's chilled, relaxed, and there's a rustle in the bushes and it stops, freezes in a nanosecond and turns towards that sound. It's looking for predator or prey, friend or foe. Basically, that's what you're doing as well. And, and you're doing it in that order. Predator or prey, friend or foe. So what you're actually doing when you listen for the next sound is what human beings are designed to do and what you've done your entire life and and pretty much every animal with ears does. And the reason that it's listening for the next sound is because the only predator that matters is the next predator. The fact that there was a predator yesterday, if your mind is on the the predator yesterday and your hearing switched off, you will not survive. So despite the fact you're thinking about yesterday's melodrama or whatever it might happen to be, your subconscious is picking up all of these sounds. And we're in a wonderfully sound-rich environment here. The chatter in the hallway, 
the birds, occasional airplane traffic, cars, dogs barking, movements in the room, sound of my voice. And all you're doing is waiting for the next sound. When you hear sound, you're not doing anything with it because by the time you've identified it, reconnecting to the next sound. So this is what we do, we just listen. Just listening for the next sound, whatever it might happen to be. There's no way to get this wrong. There's no such thing as a bad meditation of no meditation. Just listening. And we're really fortunate that there's chatter in the background. Because what you're hearing there, those voices, it's the hubbub. We can't identify the words, so all we hear is the sound of voices. Which is a very calming thing, isn't it? It's interesting. The chatter of voices around us when we can't identify the words is calming. And so the hubbub of the voices is part of the hubbub of the sound of the present moment. And by waiting for the next sound, you notice that sounds pass. They arise, they subside. It's like a constant flow of sound.
And the other thing that's happening is the sound of my voice. And one of the things you'll learn from this is to recognize that you can listen to the next sound and you don't need to listen to what I'm saying. So ignore my voice and listen for the next sound. But interestingly, when we do that, we're still able to understand what's said. And so we can extend the practice to also listening for the next word. So my voice just becomes part of the hubbub of sound of the present moment. Nothing more, nothing less. Each word is just another sound arising, subsiding. So if you place your thumb and forefinger in contact, just the very, very, very lightly, the fingertips, as lightly as possible, so lightly you could slip a cigarette paper between them. And just leave them there. Continue just listening for the next sound and the next word. Bearing in mind that the words are just another sound. notice something else that's arising in your awareness. It's your thoughts. So into the space, it's like a space in our mind, into the space of the mind there are sound, words, and thoughts. 
and we can listen for the next sound. Word. Or thought. So this is just waiting. We're not doing anything. We haven't given ourselves a job. We're just waiting for the next sound, word, or thought. all the time, the thumb and forefinger, very gently, very gently in contact. And so if you listen to the sound of my voice, you'll notice the silence between the words. And you'll notice that you can listen for that same silence between your thoughts and between the sounds. That's what waiting for a sound is, is listening to the silence. That's what waiting for a thought is, is listening to the silence. As we wait for the next thought. as well as that, you can notice something else happening. If you bring your attention to the top of the belly, the point where the belly meets the chest, you're able to notice the breath causing the belly to rise and fall.
and you, be, you can be waiting for the next breath. So as the belly's rising, you're waiting for the belly to fall. When the belly's falling, you're waiting for the belly to rise. Just waiting. No doing. No goals, no expectations. No wrong way to do it. Just waiting for the next thought, the next sound, the next word, the next breath. notice the breath in the nostrils. Notice the coolness of the in-breath, warmth of the out-breath as you breathe in and out. If it's uncomfortable for you to do this, you don't have to do it, you can just go back and notice the movement of the belly. One in every 20 people, pretty consistently finds noticing the breath uncomfortable in the nostrils, so you don't need to do it. You just notice the movement of the belly or you're noticing thoughts arising, sounds, wait for the next sound, doesn't matter. But for everyone else, they're noticing the cool, cool in-breath and the warm out-breath. And there's no instructions, doesn't matter if the mind wanders, doesn't that matter if it gets busy. We're waiting for the next breath. Waiting for the next thought. Word. Sound. When you breathe in, notice what you can smell, what you can taste, and the sensation of sitting. And in your very own time, whenever you're ready, gently return your attention to the room. As we progress through those experiences, for most people with a busy mind, the, the mind tends to get busier. So what you're discovering is the, the practice is that the mind is calmer with and the practice is that it's busier with. 
And if you've learned to meditate the traditional way, sit down at a set time for a set period of time, noticing the breath, so that last meditation is called following the breath, and it's the one that I traditionally use to teach in every session. That's how we become aware of our, our presence in the day. The breath is the way into the present moment that's most accessible for most people. And you may not even be aware that you do it, but it's a very common thing for people to take a deep breath when they need to reset their internal state. So their internal state's unsatisfactory. They'll breathe in, maybe even sigh. It's very, we, we know it, it's part of our genetic programming to do that. And so if you're going through the day and you notice that the mind's being powerful, come back to the breath. You might have to do it over and over again, but don't worry, you're breathing all day anyway, so you're not doing anything extra. Which brings me to how do you get this into your day? How do you have this? So, you know, as that practice, that took about 15 minutes, something like that, 20 minutes. How do you do that? What you do is this. It's useful to do it in this order because we've, we've, I've got to teach the 15% of people that can add extra practice into their day. What you do is you write down a thing called an implementation intention. I've mentioned this already in this series, but I'll cover it again. I'll cover the whole thing here. Write down each morning, and you choose the time you're going to do it. So you know, each morning after I brush my teeth, each morning after I step outside the door, Connect it to something that happens. That's known as a cue. Right? So we've learned the new, hab- the new science of habit formation tells us that saying I'm going to do something at a certain time is a lot less useful than saying I'm going to do something when something else happens. Because the cue becomes a trigger and if we do it a few times, the brain helps to associate it in our minds. So you write that down and you say, when you're writing, it's called an implementation intention. Every morning, at, you know, after I've done this thing, I will spend two minutes doing the meditation of no meditation. That's where we're just noticing the next sound, waiting for the next sound. Each morning at specific, after a specific activity, I will spend two minutes doing the meditation of no meditation for sound. So if, if out this group you all did that, 15% of you would do it. And the other 85% wouldn't. And what would happen is during the day, at some point, or maybe even the next day, you're going to think, oh, I haven't done my meditation of no meditation. And and usually, when we're adding new habits, what happens is we then start beating ourselves up in the hope that that's going to motivate us to do it. And sometimes that might work, sometimes it might not. But we're not going to do that. When When it 
comes to mind that you haven't done this thing. So I had a student the other day say, because when I teach this in the courses, I just give them the implementation intention. And she looked at me and she said, I can't even add two minutes to my day to do something. So clearly her, her monkey mind, her modern mind, brought that to mind during the day. Well, what we want to do is this. When that happens, when it pops into your mind that you haven't done it, that's when you do it. Right? We're reminding ourselves. We use that cue. And you can listen for the next sound wherever you are and whatever you're doing because you're doing it anyway. You're just becoming conscious of something that's happening. And notice that you can be listening to somebody and listening for the next sound. I can be talking, and I, right now, am listening for the next sound. Because I, I don't have to think about what I'm going to say. In fact, I don't know if you've ever noticed, nobody ever does. <laughs> It just comes out. It it's, comes from largely the same place as the inner dialogue. You know, there's a little voice in our head, that little voice that most, most people experience, not everyone. And then there's the, what we say. It's largely the same source, slightly different. There are more filters on the external voice, thankfully than the internal voice. Imagine if you said everything you thought. That you'd be in an uncomfortable place, right? So that's the thing that's fundamentally different, is we've learned. It's, it's not structured speech. It still arises from the subconscious, but it filters out. We've learned you can't say this, you can't say that. You learn, learn more things you can't say as you go through your life. Interesting, in modern life, society's adding more things that we can't say now as well. There, that's the only difference. There's this filtered version of the inner voice, which is what we say, and then there's the unfiltered version of the inner voice, which we don't articulate to others. That's happening. If you want to do this whole practice, it's all going to go onto a podcast. If you do the meditation of no meditation for sound, because it's frictionless for 95% of people, and it can be done at any point, you then have a practice. And that's the most important thing, is to get a practice of some sort into your life, no matter how disorganised it is, but not by pushing, but by allowing your mind to remind you to do it. Because that's what it's doing. When you notice you haven't done your implementation intention, and you, you're going through your day and you think, oh, I, haven't, I, you know, I didn't do my two minutes this morning, that's when you do it. You've then got this practice in your life, and you think, well, that's not very much, is it? 
And the answer is, well, it's two minutes more than you were doing the previous week, <laughs> right? And so where do you go from there? Let's say you add, you know, two minutes the next week or the next month and another two minutes the next week or the next month. Come the end of the year, you've got quite a significant practice. Yeah? And it will have found its way into your life in the areas that benefit you the most or, or the areas that you have the time you're able to fit it into. And it will more than likely become a, a regular practice. So rather than sort of be, you know, trying to cram 15 minutes in every morning and not doing it and then dropping out altogether, there's this false dichotomy that the way that we teach creates is you're either meditating or you're not, you're doing your 15 minutes or you're not. So therefore, you know, this, is, this is part of the illusion of success and failure. There's no such thing as success and failure. Even if you did want to cl clarify life as success and failure, most of it is spent somewhere between those two and with a combination of them, right? And that one of the beauties of life is if you want to clarify it as a set of successes and failures, no matter who we are, we're all failing somewhere, right? <laughs> so that's... That's the more helpful way to look at it, is you're finding a way to pull it into your mind. So there's a meditation practice that you can do without spending any time on doing it. So here's another one. If you want to get yourselves comfortable, this is uh, what I call the four tens meditation. It's a relaxation meditation. It's useful to put your thumb and forefinger in contact. Your comfort's the most important thing, especially if you've got a bad back or something like that, so you sit however, however makes you comfortable. But if it's all the same to you, if you place your elbows by your side and find the most comfortable place to balance your, your head on, on your spine, and with the thumb and forefinger very gently in connection, what you do is you place your tongue up against the back of the top teeth and you notice the sharpness of the bottom teeth because of the overbite. And you're noticing your breath rising and falling. I shall begin and end this meditation with a bell. And on each out-breath, what you do is relax your eyes. So we're relaxing the forehead, eyebrows, eyes and cheeks. Letting the tension out on the out-breath. Breathing in, the body becomes more alert. Breathing out it becomes more relaxed. So we're using that natural relaxation to help us relax the eyes. So it's like having an invisible massage, fingers moving down, eyebrows, eyes and cheeks, letting out a little bit more tension 
on every out breath. When you do this at home, you count up to 10 out breaths. And then breathing in normally, tongue still up against the sharp part of the teeth, just so you're aware of it, relaxing the mouth and lips, jaw and throat. And again, on the out breath, just letting the tension out, tightness, pressure, stress, releasing it. And again, if you're at home, what you do is you count this 10 out breaths. Breathing in normally, breathing out, relaxing the back and sides of the neck and the shoulders. Check your posture, elbows by the side, head balanced comfortably. And on the out breath, relaxing the back and sides of the neck and the shoulders. Count into 10 out breaths when you're at home and you do this. And then breathing in normally, breathing out, relaxing the hands. And notice that they're already quite relaxed because of the connection of the thumb and forefinger. That's the, one of the side effects of this. It's called the chin mudra when we connect our thumb and forefinger. And you're letting all the tension out of your hands now on the out breath. Again at home, counting 10 out breaths. Again, breathing in, noticing what you can smell and taste, and the sensation of sitting, and the feeling of your feet being pushed into the floor. So there's a meditation that actually takes time so how do, you, how do you get that into your day if you've got no time? What you do is you do it when you get to bed. So this is meditation. Get to bed at night, before you go to sleep. doesn't matter whether you sleep well or not. If you sleep well, you, you're going to drift off halfway through it, maybe. You might get to the end, you might not. It doesn't matter. So this is time that you don't use. 
If you find it difficult getting to sleep, you'll find it helps. Helps to relax you. So, you know, it's... And you're not using any time. So you've got two practices that you can introduce into your day and you don't need any time for either of them. So even if you think your life is cram-packed, then they're practices that you can bring into your life. If your mind's very, very busy, for 95% of people, the first meditation's frictionless and the second meditation's quite good. Don't worry about, if you do use it to try to get to sleep, don't worry about the mind. Just let it do its thing. One of the things it has to do is, is to move you into a dreamy state anyway, move you into sleep. And, and that is, it needs to be churning away to get you there. So you don't worry about it. It does its thing. All you're doing is relaxing. You're saying to yourself, well, okay, so I might not be able to sleep, but I can meditate, and it's just as useful. Because it, it, sleep is all about recovering our energy, and meditation's all about recovering our energy. I sent out a message this week on all the social media which said, recharge yourself as often as you recharge your devices. <laughs> okay. So those, those two things, they're part of the practice of no practice that I'm teaching now, and that the idea is frictionless way to bring useful practices into your life, and then once they're there, you get, you get the benefit of it. Once you see the benefits of it, which doesn't take very long, then you're um, more likely to adopt more practices and... You know, you find your way into having a useful practice, even if it's just in all of these times when you're actually not doing anything, you know, commuting and sleeping and all of that kind of stuff. That's fine. We need to do that. <laughs>